This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Don't let late winter TV footage of snowstorms fool you. A warming world is pushing us off the snow cliff. Snow drought is increasing. Dry, fire-filled summers with low rivers and crop loss surely follow in many parts of the Northern Hemisphere. We talk with lead author Alexander Gottlieb from Dartmouth. Then, satellites don't lie. Australian mining expert Dr. Tim Werner finds twice as much mining activity and damage, half of it undocumented, the dark mining economy. Welcome to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith. Radio EcoShock. As the world warms, we face declining snowpack and more summer droughts. New science discovers a key temperature point governing that relationship. Beyond it, winter snowpacks do not accumulate and summer drought affecting hundreds of millions of people likely follows. This is another sign of human-forced global warming. But forecasting snow storage is anything but simple. Finally, we have the paper... Evidence of Human Influence on Northern Hemisphere Snow Loss. The lead author is Ph.D. student Alexander R. Gottlieb, publishing with Justin Mankin. Both are with the Climate Modeling and Impacts Group at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Together, over the years, they published a series of investigations into climate and snowpack. Alexander Gottlieb, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks for having me, Alex. Well, most snow accumulates in mountainous areas where few people live. Why should our listeners tune in to the state of the world's snowpack as the planet continues to warm? Right. So that snow that's accumulating in the mountains, it might seem kind of distant and far off for a lot of people, but that snow forms a really crucial part of our water supply in many parts of the world. We count on the snow accumulating in the mountains in the winter, which is generally a time of year when demand for water is really low, and snow accumulates, and it forms this natural reservoir that will gradually melt out in the streams and soils and rivers in the spring and summer as our demand for that water may be far downstream from where it's actually accumulating, but our demand for that water really starts to ramp up for things like irrigation for agriculture or the generation of hydroelectric power as our energy demands ramp up in the summer or just our domestic everyday water needs. Well, mountains offer the most complex geography on the planet. How do we even measure snowpack? Are there measuring stations up there or calculations from satellites or what? Yeah, you're right that snow is incredibly challenging to measure, um, and there are a couple different ways that we can do it. You can go out and take manual measurements. If there's snow on the ground where you are, you could walk outside. You could take a core of that snow all the way down to the ground, and you could melt that snow. And the amount of water that you have, that would be your snowpack. And we've been doing that for the better part of a century in places like the American West and British Columbia. And lately, in the last 40 years or so, we've developed ways to do that in an automated fashion using some sensors so we don't have to necessarily be skiing out there and taking snow cores. The challenging part of that is that, as you mentioned, snow is accumulating most often in this mountainous terrain, which is incredibly variable place to place. So while the measurement that you take might be a really great estimate of the snowpack at that particular point, things could look very different 100 meters in one direction or the other. 
And so all these measurements are incredibly valuable and have really formed the basis of our water supply forecasting, again, for the better part of a century in some regions. They're just incredibly challenging to generalize in space. And we also just don't have the kind of dense networks of these measurements that we really need to inform our understanding of snowpack in large swaths of the world where people live and rely on snow water resources. So if we want to get a more spatially complete picture of what snowpack looks like, we could imagine trying to remotely sense it from space using satellites. Um, That gives us the advantages of we can see the whole globe at once, um, and so we can get measurements in places where we might not be sampling snow on the ground. But there are just certain technological limitations to measuring snow using satellites. Um, Our ability to detect changes saturates pretty quickly after a pretty modest snowpack. So in these mountainous regions where we're accumulating quite a lot of snow in a lot of cases, we're just not able to actually capture the full depth of it. And then the third option we have is using things that we have much better, more spatially complete observations of, like temperature and precipitation. And we can run those observations through process-based models that, you know, take that information of our observations of the climate and do their best to estimate how much snow we wind up with, given our understanding of the physical relationships. But snow is just incredibly challenging to simulate from a process-based standpoint. And so the upshot of all of this is that we have a bunch of different ways of estimating how much snow is on the ground at any given place. But those estimates don't agree with one another particularly well on either the actual magnitude of that snowpack or its variability or even its long-term trends through time. There are large swaths of the globe where we can't even look at all of these different data sets and have really good agreement that snow's been either increasing or decreasing in the long term. Well, that's going to make it more difficult. Now, to understand your new discovery, first we need to go back in a series of papers by yourself and Justin Mankin to find the phenomenon of snow drought. What does that mean, and can you give us some examples of a snow drought? We can think of a snow drought as a period of exceptionally low snow. Um, We could think of it as either an entire winter where at no point did we really accumulate much snow, or you could think of it on shorter time scales. Say you start out a winter really dry, you might consider yourself in a snow drought, but maybe you get a couple big storms and come out of it later, or conversely, you could accumulate snow early, but you have a really warm spring and all that snow melts out early, so you don't have it at those crucial times of year. So there are a bunch of different ways of thinking about snow drought. Um, I would say some of the clearest examples of snow drought that really highlights some of the different flavors of snow drought and some of the different ways that you can get there. If we think about a winter like 2015 on the American West Coast, which really up and down the coast from California up through Washington and into British Columbia was an exceptionally low snow year. But the ways that we arrived at those low snowpacks looked very different. In California, that was a year that was just incredibly dry. It was cold enough in most cases that if the precipitation had been there, it would have fallen as snow, but the moisture supply just wasn't there, and so there was a record low snow year. On the other hand, if we look up more into the Pacific Northwest and up into parts of British Columbia, it was a plenty wet winter. It was incredibly wet, but it was so warm that all of that precipitation was falling as rain instead of snow, and so we were never accumulating much snow. So we can think of these different flavors of snow droughts as dry snow droughts on the one hand, where the moisture just isn't there and so you're not accumulating snow, or these warm snow droughts where the moisture might be there, but 
it's just so warm that either you're getting rain instead of snow or snow that's on the ground is melting out. And our expectation as the planet continues to heat up is that these warm snow droughts are going to become more and more common. You say the snowpack is not behaving like a sentinel for climate change. As figure one in the paper says, observed long-term warming trends are robust throughout the northern hemisphere, but snowpack trends are not. Why isn't snow accumulation acting in lockstep with warming? Yeah, that's a great question. I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One, which we already talked about, was that snow is just incredibly challenging to measure and estimate. And so we have this fundamental observational uncertainty that makes detecting really coherent trends challenging. I'd say the second is that snow is just incredibly variable year to year, even absent any climate change. Um, Things just can look very different depending on things like whether you're in an El Nino or a La Nina state in a given place. And so the given that the background variability is really high and that our observational records of snow are relatively short on the order of 40 years or so, it can make teasing out the long-term signals pretty challenging. And then finally is that at the same time that the planet is heating up, which all else equal, we would expect to be reducing snowpacks, that warmer atmosphere can also hold more moisture. And what that does is it increases the potential for precipitation. And what we've seen, what we can see really clearly in our observations, is that over much of the northern hemisphere, and particularly in these cold regions where we often expect snow, we've seen enhanced wintertime precipitation from our warming of the atmosphere. And if it so happens that that extra precipitation is falling at times where it's cold enough that it's going to come down to snow instead of rain, you might actually see some warming-driven increases in snow from this enhanced precipitation effect that could potentially either offset slightly or in some cases completely buffer the warming-driven declines that we'd expect. Tell us more about the magic number that you and Justin discovered where snow can build or not, and what this tells us. What you're referring to there is what we identify as this snow loss cliff which starts occurring around minus 8 Celsius or about 17 degrees Fahrenheit. And the crucial importance of that number is that that is the point at which your snowpack starts to become much more sensitive to warming. So if you're somewhere that's incredibly cold in the wintertime, your average winter temperature is less than minus 8, you can warm a little bit and you're not really going to see a whole lot of a response in your snowpack because you're so cold that even with a bit of warming, your wintertime precipitation is still likely to be snow instead of rain. You're unlikely to get these really warm spells during the winter that can melt out snow that's accumulated on the ground. But as your average temperature gets closer and closer to the freezing point, and again, we really see this start to emerge and accelerate around minus 8, that degree of warming starts to increase the likelihood that that storm that was snow is now dumping rain instead, or that you get a big thaw that melts out a lot of your accumulated snow. The likelihood of the warming pushing you into those states starts to increase exponentially. And so what that means is that beyond this threshold of about minus eight for your average wintertime temperature, each marginal bit of warming is likely to take a larger and larger chunk of your snowpack. And so in places that sit either just beyond or far beyond this threshold, even modest amounts of warming can cause really rapidly emerging and accelerating losses in your snowpack. 
And that's another part of the reason that documenting snow losses to date has been really challenging, is that this fundamental underlying relationship means that you only start to really notice changes in your snowpack when it's already too late, when you're already in this regime where you're incredibly sensitive to warming. And so in that sense, snowpack really serves as a pretty poor sentinel or a pretty poor canary in the coal mine, which you want to give warning before the miners die, before you're off that cliff and you're in a place where you're rapidly losing snow. But because of this underlying relationship, you only start to see snow losses emerging once you've already gone over the edge of that cliff. So in an earlier paper, you asked the question, does information about snow drought, however measured and defined, actually improve forecasts of droughts in the warm season? Can we say yes yet? I think we can. Um, I think a big theme through this and all of our other work is that what happens in the wintertime doesn't just stay in the wintertime, that through a series of connections through the atmosphere, through the land surface. Changes to snow in the wintertime can have these cascading effects that affect downstream risks for things like drought or wildfire or heat waves. As we mentioned, snow is this amazing natural reservoir that stores water and then releases it at another time of year. And as that water is entering the system earlier and earlier, when you're getting rain instead of snow or that snow is melting out earlier, the likelihood that you're going to have that water available during these really hot, dry times of year starts to go down and makes you much more susceptible to things like drought and wildfire in the warm season. In this new paper in Nature, your team goes global away from the American West into the global scene, and here is a case right out of the headlines. The New York Times reports January 16th, Snowcat Nanda and Samir Yassir ask, it's January at a big Himalayan resort, where's the snow? And they report, quote, a dry winter has been devastating to Gulmarg, one of Asia's highest ski resorts in Indian-controlled Kashmir. Would your study method pick up this kind of thing, and would it be able to judge whether human-induced warming is a contributing cause? Yeah, that's a great question. We are not able in our work to make many confident claims about what is going on in the Himalaya or the massively populated river basins, the Ganges, the Brahmaputra, the Indus, um, that the snow that accumulates in those mountains feed. And that is in large part due to just the incredible observational uncertainty in those areas. As we were talking about earlier, it's really challenging to estimate snowpack and mountainous terrain, and the Himalaya are far none the area of the most dramatic topographic relief on the planet. So it makes estimating snow in those regions really difficult, and our estimates there don't agree with one another particularly well. The other thing that has prevented us from being able to really clearly identify a fingerprint of climate change on Himalayan snowpack is that fundamental problem of causal inference in climate change, where we only have the one planet that we live on. We don't have the really nice, think, medical randomized control trial where we have a bunch of Earths and we emit on some of them and we don't emit greenhouse gases on the other. And then we can compare snow on those two planets to estimate what is the causal effect of our emissions on snowpack. We don't have that. What we do have are climate models, which are these incredibly complex computer programs that simulate the physics of 
the atmosphere and the oceans and the cryosphere and the land surface and all of their interactions with one another. And what these climate models do is they let us estimate these counterfactuals. We can run models with our historical greenhouse gas emissions, and we can run those exact same models without them and see what the differences in a quantity like our snowpack are on those two worlds and really estimate that counterfactual. But what it relies on is our ability to accurately simulate regional responses to temperature and precipitation to understand what that counterfactual world looks like where we haven't caused changes to precipitation and temperature and the resulting snowpack. And our models just really don't agree with one another particularly well in the Himalaya on what the response of temperature and precipitation has been to climate change. Again, for many of the same reasons that it's difficult to measure snow there, it's just given the coarse spatial scale of these climate models and the incredibly dramatic topographic relief of a place like the Himalaya and the amount of small-scale processes that are occurring there that shape the vertical temperature profile and the amount of precipitation that they're getting, it's incredibly challenging to simulate the climate of that region. And because of that, our climate model estimates of how temperature and precipitation and snow have responded to climate change don't agree with one another particularly well, which makes it challenging to identify that human fingerprint. This is a climate emergency. Find out more on the blog, ecoshock.org. No sign up, just the latest info, free for all. ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. Our guest is researcher Alex Gottlieb, and we're talking about human force changes to winter snowpack and, of course, drought downstream the following summer. People who need to know, the people who make decisions and those who pay the price, they need forecasts specific to their river basin. Have we progressed to the point of being able to provide those forecasts? I think we have, at least in terms of our long-term expectations of what snowpack and subsequent runoff from that snowpack are. In this work, we're able to dive down beyond the scale of just generally what has climate change done to snow across the northern hemisphere to what has it done in these highly populated river basins. And in a number of them, we're able to identify this really clear anthropogenic fingerprint of our emissions have caused long-term snowpack declines, and we're able to put numbers on that. We see it most strongly in some of the major river basins of the United States, think the Colorado, the Great Salt Lake, um, and many of the major river basins in Europe, too, like the Danube and the Vistula. Um, and so we're actually able to, at this really more human and decision-relevant scale, say that, yes, climate change has been causing decreases in snowpack, and yes, we are seeing less runoff in the spring and summer because of that. Um, but I think what this work shows is that even in places where we're not able to clearly detect or changes in snowpack over the long term, or maybe we can detect changes, but we can't necessarily attribute them to our human greenhouse gas emissions, what this snow loss cliff idea, this fundamental underlying relationship between your average winter temperature and your sensitivity of snowpack warming shows is it shows what the future might look like in some of these places. Depending on what your average wintertime temperatures are, you may already be in a regime where you can expect really rapid and accelerating snow loss in the future with even a modest amount of warming. 
or say you're just to the left or just on the brink of that cliff, we can see how our sort of fundamental underlying snow regime might change with warming in the future and whether you're going to be in a place that even with a lot of warming is going to be pretty insensitive and so maybe we don't need to be concerned about snow and warming in these really cold places but in most of these really highly populated places where people live they're either just on or just over the edge of this cliff and I think what it highlights is that the long-term expectation of accelerating snow loss in these places is really clear and that is a future reality that we need to be planning for now. Well, surely some of these basins are also home to major food export crops, and could snow drought trend threaten world supplies in coming decades? And Or would there be some places which will get more moisture that could make up for that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, it really, I think, fundamentally depends on our ability to adapt to these changes in snow and the fact that this natural reservoir that we've relied on that accumulates snow in the winter and then melts out in the spring and summer where we're using that water for irrigation to grow our food crops, that that timing is going to change, that that moisture is just not going to be bridged between the winter and the summer when we need it in the same way. And so what it would really take would be really substantial and politically contentious investments in infrastructure to change our water management approach such that if that water during the winter is coming down as rain instead of snow, that it's not just bouncing off the land surface and ultimately making its way to the oceans, that we're still able to make productive use of it. So it's going to require a really fundamental shift in how we think about capturing and managing water to have that water still be available during the growing season. As a person living in the Western Fire Zone, and for people around the world who are worried about fire, smoke, and CO2, I was particularly interested in a presentation you and Justin did at the Western Snow Conference. What did you find out about the relationships between snowpack and wildfires the following summer? Sure. So there we were really building off of an existing body of work that had identified this relationship where following low snow winters or winters where maybe you have snow but it melts out early, that those winters tend to be followed by really bad wildfire seasons in years where you have a lot of snowpack and that snowpack persists late into the spring. Those tend to be lower fire years. And so what we were doing in our work that we presented at that conference was trying to see how robust this relationship was to some of those fundamental underlying data uncertainties that I was talking about earlier, that the fact that all of our different estimates of snowpack don't necessarily agree with one another that well. And so what we did was we looked at how consistent this snow and wildfire relationship was across all of these different snow data sets, which I think is just generally an approach that we take in our work is treating uncertainty, in this case, our observational uncertainty in snowpack, as a source of information and not just noise that causes us to wring our hands and say we can't really claim anything. By looking at this full range of estimates, even if they don't agree with one another very well, we're able to identify places where there's really strong consilience across them of a particular signal. And in this case, we're able to identify that in a bunch of western U.S. basins, that regardless of which snow data product we look at, this relationship between low snow winters and bad wildfire seasons held pretty consistently. 
You are at Dartmouth College in New Hampshire. Has human forest warming changed the snowpack in the Appalachian Mountains of New England? Absolutely. The northeast U.S., where I'm sitting right now, was one of the places, along with the American Southwest and a lot of Western and Central Europe, where we were able to identify this really clear human fingerprint on our long-term snowpack trends. And we estimate that in the Connecticut River Basin, where I'm sitting right now, that climate change has been reducing our snowpack by about 10% a decade or so over the last 40 years. So you multiply that out and Back in 1980, which is around when our study period started, there would have been about 40% more snow come March in the Connecticut River Basin where I'm sitting than there is now, and that that decline is due to anthropogenic climate change. Other than slashing human greenhouse gas emissions, what can we do to prepare for this change in winter snow storage? What do you advise, Alex? You know, I think water managers in places like the American West and really across the world. They know their systems incredibly well. They know the challenges that they're going to face in a warming climate, which we highlight. And I think it's really just about giving these people the resources that they need to do the long-term planning adaptation that is absolutely necessary to adapt to a less snowy future. So much of our decision-making and our investments are built in this crisis management framework where we have one really low snow year and an emergency gets declared and that frees up some resources. But what our work shows is that we can't just hop from crisis to crisis. We can't operate in this emergency framework when we're in a fundamentally different snow regime and that we only expect those losses to accelerate and get worse. And so now is really the time that we need to be doing that long-term planning and investment in infrastructure to manage this changing hydroclimatic regime that we're in. So I think it's really just a question of, you know, a shift in our perspective and what we're willing to invest our resources in. And it has to be away from crisis to crisis and towards planning for these fundamental long-term changes. What are you working on next? The approach that we take in this paper is very water security focused, trying to tie these human-caused declines in snowpack to their downstream water security implications. But the fact is that the impacts of something like snow loss are going to be felt very differently in different regions. In somewhere like the American West, maybe those water security concerns are paramount. In somewhere like where I am in northern New England, water security from snow maybe isn't as big of a deal because we're somewhere that gets pretty even precipitation in each month of the year. And so we still have water coming into our system in the warm season when we really need it. But on the other hand, I live in a place where there are entire local economies built around this expectation of a nice, consistent snowpack throughout the winter. Think winter recreation like skiing or logging and forestry, which is really dependent on having frozen ground and a good snowpack on top of that to be able to operate in the woods during the winter. And so these economies are just going to experience pretty dramatic socioeconomic disruption um, as snow gets less and less reliable in the future. And so part of the work that we're doing is really trying to quantify what the impacts of snow loss are in different places. To zoom out a little bit, that's one of the overall 
focuses of our research is trying to really assiduously document the costs of climate change. In this particular case, we're looking at snow, but I think writ large, we're really systematically underestimating the costs of climate change, and as such, we're underestimating the costs of inaction on climate change. And so by documenting the socioeconomic impacts of some feature of climate change, in my case, snow loss, and really documenting what those costs are, we hope that we can make a much stronger case for really rapid and dramatic climate action to avoid those kinds of accelerating impacts that we expect. From Hanover, New Hampshire, in Dartmouth College, we have been speaking with graduate student and published scientist Alex Gottlieb. He leads the new paper in the prestigious journal Nature, Evidence of Human Influence on Northern Hemisphere Snow Loss. You can find links to the Mankin Lab and all the science we just talked about in my show blog at ecoshock.org. Alexander, thank you for taking us through this breakthrough science. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. I had a great talk. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. In the middle of January, the warmest place in all of Canada was in Nunavut at a remote airport near the Arctic Sea. It's way up north. And that same week, it rained in Greenland. That is impossible. Insane. An overheated winter Arctic is pushing its cold further south. To you. That's what happens when we change the atmosphere. New rules tomorrow. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio EcoShock with your host, Alex Smith. Mining and processing is a major source of greenhouse gases heating the world. Just getting the coal, the metals, and the materials adds more warming. But a new study from satellite images reveals we don't know the half of it. As this paper in Nature says, impacts for half of the world's mining areas are undocumented. Here to explain is Dr. Tim Werner, a research fellow in the School of Geography, Earth, and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne in Australia. From Melbourne, Tim Werner, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thanks so much for having me. Well, this is shocking. Businesses, they access well-known databases of world mining. Governments make important decisions based on that data. What made you and Victor Mouse wonder whether these records are really complete? Uh, it comes from years of trying to find the data and not really succeeding. <laughs> so we have been studying the global impacts of mining for many years. And sometimes when you're looking in satellite imagery, you'll identify a mining area that appears to have substantial impacts on the landscape. And you ask yourself the question, what information can we find about this mine? And you can easily spend several hours trying to figure out who's the company that runs it, uh, what information do they have public, um, and sometimes you'll be successful and sometimes not. And because it takes so long to try and find information about just one site, and there's tens of thousands of sites out there, we often rely on global compilations that are produced by groups like Standard & Poor's. And we wanted to know how well does this compilation cover what's out there. So after we scanned the whole globe to look at the footprint of mining, we, we naturally wanted to make the comparison. What we found was that 
roughly half the sites out there have production information noted in standards and pause. And we need production information to give us a sense of the scale of the mining project. Uh, but note that production is only one source of information. We also don't know how much water they're using, how much water they're disposing. We don't know anything about soil quality. We don't know anything about energy use. So the paper we wrote really was just saying, we don't have this basic information for half the site, but there's a lot more that, that we'd like to know as well. In what countries did you find the most undocumented mines? So, just to be clear, we're not necessarily saying that the mines themselves are undocumented um, because the pattern of research gaps extends across all countries. There's, there's actually no pattern to where the gaps exist. You've got some countries like Canada and Australia that ostensibly have quite highly regulated mine areas where they do report production, but those reports aren't being collated and included in these global compilations that researchers use. And then for other countries, the mines are simply not reporting. The, the regulation doesn't require it. There might be illegal mines. So the, the reasons for these research gaps vary wildly depending where you are in the world. But nonetheless, the gaps are still there no matter where you are in the world. Only a few studies and books cover the scope of illegal mining, and but they find criminal gangs, child labor, even slave labor, and toxic leftovers ruining rivers and landscapes. Tim, do you think illegal mining is minor in the big picture or bigger than we think? So the truth is we simply don't know the, the global extent of illegal mining. Um, by its very nature, it's not reported. We can make some inferences from satellite imagery to show, okay, well, some mines, they look like illegal mining operations. Um, they don't look quite the same as formal mines. Um, they have sometimes different equipment or they, they might operate along rivers. But the truth is we just don't know. Our sense is that the scale is quite large. So some reports out there show that for some commodities and in some countries, you know, up to 80% of the total mining could be informal or illegal mining. Would your satellite study distinguish between old mining sites that aren't used anymore and those that are active now? It's possible to make some distinctions. So you can use satellite imagery to identify sites that are more active or less active. But in general, it's kind of hard to be conclusive about what's historical activity and what's current activity. In Australia, we did a study a few years ago where we uh, collected data to find out how many abandoned mine sites there were, and we identified that there were about 80,000 compared to maybe 20,000 or so current mines and mineral exploration sites. So... The scale of historical mining activity is potentially enormous uh, at a global level, and for sure we don't have much information about these kind of sites either. The companies don't exist anymore to report, and the, the task is simply too large in some cases for governments to, to monitor what's happening at these sites. Some could be relatively inert. They could be you know, just a, an abandoned mine shaft somewhere, 
some are quite large, and I visited them myself um, a few years ago in, in Tasmania. There's some, some abandoned sites have a, a really massive ongoing environmental legacy. Yes, we have some. In British Columbia, we had a copper mine that was leaking heavy metals uh, and acidic materials for decades afterwards. And, you know, it's it's a story around the world. So let's switch gears a little bit. There are so many ways mining ties into climate change. What is your impression of the role of mining and smelting as sources of direct emissions heating the world? So it's it's a really interesting relationship because, of course, to address some of these ambitious climate targets, we're going to need a massive rollout of renewable energy, and that is going to require us to mine some metals in unprecedented quantities. And so from that perspective, we're going to need some mines absolutely to succeed and to to really ramp up production. So we face this challenge of some parts of the world experiencing increased localised impacts in order to address a global problem. And of course we need coal mines to close as part of this transition too. The direct emissions coming from mine sites is relatively small given that it's it's a relatively intense land use. So if you look at the the areas directly occupied by mines, so I'm talking about like the footprint of the tailings dam itself, the waste rock dumps and so on, we're talking in the order of 100,000 square kilometres. If you compare that to, say, deforestation, agriculture and so on, the actual footprint is comparatively small. So my understanding is that the, the more interesting questions around um, greenhouse gases come from the role that the materials will play in the, the energy transition. Yes, and Dr. Simon Michaud of the Geological Survey of Finland doubts that all the rare minerals needed for green technology will be available, at least not in time, for the transition needs. Uh, What do you think? We're not running out of minerals needed for the energy transition. Research on the, the volume of resources indicates that discovery success has has kept pace and is likely to keep pace. The bigger questions around availability are more related to which sites will operate sustainably, which countries are likely to become major producers. So it's not a question of geological availability, but more about the sustainability of different operations and whether or not different projects are going to be able to obtain social and environmental license. Right. Can humans do it? Okay, so mining and distribution of minerals are also heavily affected themselves by climate disturbances, like a mine can flood during extreme storms or or the drought can take away the water that they need for processing ore. Uh, Have you heard some about that? So this is something that I'm interested in actively researching right now. So mines are unevenly distributed around the world. Some will be located in coastal areas. Some are located in uh, arid areas. And, of course, climate change is going to have an impact on the ability for some places to operate. Uh, So some sites may be exposed to coastal inundation. Some sites may be exposed to uh, increased bushfire, for example, or extreme heat. 
And this is an interesting question to ask about how is this going to affect global supply chains. We don't quite know yet, but we're certainly going to be um, investigating that as time goes on. One interesting fact is that we know, for example, where major metals are distributed, for example, zinc and copper, and a lot of the metals that we need are byproducts of these metals. So indium, for example, which is needed in, in some solar panels and, and LCD displays, that's a byproduct of zinc. And while we know where the zinc is in the world, companies don't necessarily report resources of indium. So we don't quite have a, a good understanding of the distribution of these byproduct metals compared to the, to the major metals. So understanding how those supply chains will be impacted becomes a bit more complicated. Covering the world, this is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm Alex Smith with our guest, Dr. Tim Werner from the University of Melbourne. We're talking about the unknown parts of the mining industry. Tim, your comment in Nature, January 3rd, 2024, suggests four steps to correct our mining blindness. And the first step is really to stop kidding ourselves that we already know what is going on, right? Yeah, absolutely. So virtually all of the global-scale research on mining has depended on using the SMP database, and it is a very useful database, but it doesn't have everything we need. We often have to make assumptions, for example, treating all mines as dots on a map and assuming that the scale of mining is equal everywhere. But this isn't quite good enough. We need to have some more granular information. And until that information comes along, we need to be really clear about what we can say about global mining and what we can't. And so our paper was simply suggesting, let's be really honest about the massive research gaps that we have and all of the things that we can't measure for the time being. You and Victor also talk about the lack of transparency. I can vouch for that. In my research, I'm often blocked by paywalls and complications or just hidden or missing data all over the place. Can it be fixed? I'm optimistic that it can, and certainly there are a lot of NGOs out there and, and groups that are working with the mining industry to boost transparency, and credits where it's due, there are some companies out there and groups um, that are very concerned about the environment and are interested in producing detailed sustainability reports. Um, the problem is that they're just the minority for the moment. What I would like to see is a future where transparency enables us to identify the projects that are operating the best and they receive additional support, uh, which will work as an incentive for other companies to also increase their own transparency and increase their, in their attractiveness to investors. As you say, we are talking about vast amounts of data can you use artificial intelligence to start tracking world mining and its impacts and then make that available to all? There are some things that we can infer remotely. So we can determine, for example, the extent of deforestation that's occurring in a mining area. Uh, we can look at how the footprint of a mine area is increasing. And for sites that have reported, 
we can draw correlations so we can say, okay, they produce this much over time, they produce this much waste over time, how does that compare with the footprint? Okay, there's some relationship there and maybe we can use that relationship to infer information about other sites that aren't reporting. We can achieve some success there and I think as satellite data and AI techniques uh, improve over time, our ability to fill some gaps uh, will increase. But we can't tell everything. So, for example, we can't necessarily remotely sense soil quality or water quality um, to the extent that we might want. Um, so there are some things that we're going to have to rely on companies to tell us based on their own in-situ monitoring but there's other aspects that we are going to be able to determine ourselves better in future using these kinds of technologies. The Nature comment did not dwell on damages from mining, but you have studied exactly that. Please take some time to tell us about your October 2023 study, Patterns of Infringement, Risk and Impact Driven by Coal Mining Permits in Indonesia. Yeah, so coal mining in Indonesia is extremely controversial and a, a big reason for that is in East Kalimantan, which is one of the, the major coal-producing regions, mines are not properly rehabilitated when they close. And what that means is you've got pits that quickly fill up with water because it's in a tropical region and they're very hazardous. And... Up to 40 people, mostly children, have drowned in these coal pits since 2011. Naturally, there's been a lot of uh, community opposition to, to these mining projects. They're being established quite close to where people live. And so in that study, I wanted to explore to see if I could map out the extent of mining activity, compare that to where people are living, look at where people have died, and try and produce a geographical profile of risk associated with these mine areas. And essentially what we find is that the mines, the permits are being um, allocated in such a way that increases risk. The mines don't even necessarily adhere to these permit boundaries. Trying to get information on the permit boundaries themselves is incredibly difficult. It's very clear that, that the spread of sites um, is much larger than um, is previously been indicated by, by where people are drowning, which is to say that there is potential for more people to drown in future based on the, on the spread of sites and the spread of where people live. And all of these, these kind of patterns of, of risk highlight major regulatory failures in, in the province of East Kalimantan. There's a very complicated history of potential corruption, so members of, of government being involved in approvals processes, also being linked to um, ownership of some of these companies, and there's been violence associated with some of these mines, so some mines being defended by paramilitary groups, and the real losers in all of this is is the community who feel powerless to... They, they essentially feel that they have no say in, in what's going on and the impacts that, that are being experienced. So this is a, a, a region with a particularly bad track.
track record when it comes to mine management. Of course, it's not like this for all coal mines around the world, um, but it's, it's useful to point out these kinds of issues because Indonesia is a major coal exporter. So anybody importing these coal products should be aware of the, the circumstances in which those, those products were produced. I would think mining damage should come in different risk categories. I mean, I expect the scale of damage uh, visible from satellites to expand from shaft mining to open pit mines, which can be giant, and then mountaintop removal as the worst environmentally. Uh, would you agree with that? I mean, there are many egregious examples <laughs> to be found around the world. What pops to mind is, is um, disposal of tailings in rivers, uh, which you see, for example, at uh, Octeti in Papua New Guinea. So you've got a sort of an ecological disaster that, that extends for the, the full length from the, the mountaintops where the mines are all the way down through the rivers to the coastline and affecting all the communities along the way as well. And you've got some sites that, that don't have a tailing stand um, visible because it's, it's dumped out at sea. Um, which raises an interesting question for our study about how do we map areas of impact or areas of footprint. So, um, yeah, in, in the satellite analysis that we've done, we can only map what's visible, um, but broader areas of impact are, are clearly much larger than the 120,000 square kilometres that we did map. Well, I agree, and I was wondering, I mean, the government of Norway just approved deep seabed mining in Arctic waters, what do you think about that, and would those operations even show up in satellite monitoring? No, it's, it's the answer. Uh, it's extremely controversial, and, and I've, I've only got limited information to comment on that. But essentially, the, the, the two sides of the argument are, well, if, if we start mining the seabed, we're avoiding terrestrial impacts, which is true but also we don't have much research to inform what the impacts on the seabed might be. So others will argue that we need to apply the precautionary principle. We need a lot more research about what kind of biodiversity exists on the seabed to truly understand what the impacts might be. We can't necessarily risk an out-of-sight, out-of-mind sort of attitude when it comes to mining the seabed. It's not my, my specific area of expertise but it's an area of hot debate. Well, right now, mining requires a lot of fossil fuels to operate and more to process the ore. There are reports of one copper mine in Chile running on solar power. You co-authored a 2023 PNAS paper, How to Fuel an Energy Transition with Ecologically Responsible Mining. So you think it can be done? Yes, I do, and... But the problem is we need the information to prove it, right? I would like to be able to say, this mine is sustainable. Let's put all our money into that mine. But to be able to prove low-impact mining operations, we need the data to do so. There are companies out there that are interested in technological innovation, that are interested in, in minimizing their impact. There are people in the mining in industry who dedicate their entire careers towards minimizing impacts who are interested in really effective mine site rehabilitation, who are interested in minimizing water consumption and use, who do effective environmental monitoring, who 
looking at innovative ways to obtain energy um, to power their, their operations. So we're looking at electrifying the technology and the, the vehicles that are used on site. So yes, absolutely, there's a lot that can be done and a lot that is being done. There's a lot more work that, that needs to be done. And in Australia, there are people in the industry and, and government who will claim that, that we've got world-leading regulation and to some extent, yes, that, that's very true and there's a lot of innovation that's going on. But sometimes when you've got a lot of investment into a project, that doesn't necessarily guarantee success. Um, there are some projects, for example, where millions or billions have been spent on rehabilitation and success is not necessarily guaranteed. So uh, I have optimism, but also there are massive challenges, technological challenges that we face. A July paper in the Journal for Cleaner Production estimated damages from emissions in global mining and resource sector add up to $3 trillion U.S. dollars every single year. So these things cost a lot more than we think, and then we pay extra with wrecked weather. Why do you think the public seems so uninterested and uninformed about the real cost of resource extraction? It's a difficult question. I mean, part of it is because we're so dependent on materials. It may be that we're willing to excuse some impacts because we're so dependent on the product. <laughs> but I, I, I don't necessarily want to, want to speculate. But, yeah, mining is something that we have to live with. Whether we're mining something that's, you know, maybe a relic of the past, like coal, versus something that we absolutely need for our future, like lithium, there are going to be some costs. And it's not necessarily up for the up to the layperson to to understand you know, the marginal differences in emissions from from one mining project to another. It's, it's quite complicated. I think people are more just interested in are we going to get the materials we need for our future or not, and um, is that transition going to occur in my backyard or not? <laughs> You've published some key research in the field, Tim. What are you working on next? So I'm, I'm interested in, in understanding the global distribution of cadmium resources. I'm, I'm going to be hopefully publishing a, a study on that later this year. Cadmium is really interesting because we do use it in battery technologies, but it's also a toxic heavy metal. And so in some mines, it's considered a resource, and in other mines, it's considered uh, a, a penalty metal. So trying to understand it as a, as a resource is, is really interesting. And then the next thing I'm looking at is, is how the mining industry itself is going to be impacted by natural hazards and, and climate change in future. That's, that's something I'm interested in. terms of figuring out how our future supply chains might be impacted. From the University of Melbourne, we've been speaking with research fellow Dr. Tim T. Werner, and you can find links to all the science and reports we just talked about at ecoshock.org every Wednesday, and that's Thursday in Australia. Tim, thank you for talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. We don't really know the size of the human bootprint on nature. All the official maps and business registers did not show about half the world's actual mining. Now, another new study shows up to three-quarters of industrial fishing is not tracked or accounted for. 
The paper is titled, Satellite Mapping Reveals Extensive Industrial Activity at Sea. It outlines the dark ocean web of ships scraping away life from the ocean night and day. That also means at least a third of the energy and emissions from international shipping is hidden. This team used AI and satellite imagery to map ocean activities that take place out of sight, including fishing, shipping, and energy development. I'm trying to get the author on the show to tell us more. So when billionaires gather at Davos or oil lobbyists at the COP climate conferences, they only have half the real picture at best. Governments in the United Nations do not know the full scope of human activity or damage. As usual, it is much worse than you have been told. This is why emergency action to save what remains of living systems is needed immediately. We need to pierce the facade of ever-growing wealth to find the crumbling foundations to save the disappearing life operations that support us all. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for listening and caring about our world. Something like 2040 to 2050, uh, the European excessive summer of 2003, when over 20,000 people died of overheating, will be the norm. Every year will be as hot as that, nearly. CO2 Society, I will not play your game. You try to hypnotize me, empty out my brain. Your stupid arguments are really all the same. We've been living far too long with the shame. And CO2, climate action for real. We deserve it, we deserve it. So we can look our children's eyes. Proud and free of shame, proud and free, proud and free. CO2 Society, it's time for you to go. Time to go. Time to go. We've seen enough of your empty, pointless show. The CO2 Society, it's time for you to go. Yes, and there will be mass migrations. You, anyone with an imagination can see the awful human consequences of that. You came with your wealth and glamour, but that was long ago. Now your tatty times are through. CO2 Society, it's time for you to leave. Spare our children's children from what would be, cause you're wasting their future degree by degree. You don't need your climate catastrophe. Carbonate, 
Time for you to go, go, go. Time for you to go, bankers and billionaires. Time for you to go, carbon power. Time for you to go, time's up. Go, go. It's time for you to go, carbon age. Time for you to go, go, go. Time for you to go, bankers and billionaires. Time for you to go, carbon power. Time for you to go, time's up.